Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. It's more of the same today. Good thing the same is pretty groovy, eh? Hey, that's a Minnesotan-style rhyme, wouldn't you say? This is episode number 42. Welcome to another special episode of this show. Wow. You're listening in yet again, and I am super duper grateful for that. Thank you for your time and attention, because without it, Smart and Simple Matters is nothing. Nada. I am going solo for a second straight episode because there was too much experience curating to pack into one show. Now, back in episode 41, I covered why I decided to spend nine months writing a book when I don't like writing, what the heck experience curating is, a brief history of curating throughout the centuries, some high-level benefits of experience curating, what you can or should curate, some role models for your curating journey, and many best practices of experience curating. I consider SASM episode 41 required listening to get the most out of this episode, so give it a whirl first if you haven't heard that one yet. You can also check out the show notes at valueofsimple.com slash SASM041 to get up to speed. Now, I am one day away from the public launch of Experience Curating the Book. As of publishing this podcast episode on February 17th, 2014, Oh, holy schmoly, this is exciting and nerve-wracking. There are already 11 reviews, though, on Amazon, all five stars, thanks in part to an over-eager group of readers and listeners that did not care for my public launch schedule. Thank you, guys. I love you for it. If you are one of those people, uh, or if you would like to leave a review on Amazon, library thing, Goodreads, your blog, or anywhere else in the future, if you review it, thank you so much. Those reviews are just so huge for the visibility and impact of the book. One quick note, if you are in front of an electronic device with internet access, now might be a good time to go to valuesimple.com slash ECB, Echo Charlie Bravo, so you can see the details about experience curating. It's not mandatory, but the additional context might help, and curating is all about the context. Now, speaking of that, I'm assuming you already have the context from either reading the book or listening to the previous Experience Curating episode of the show, so I'm just going to hit it after a couple more quick notes. Boy, I'm enthusiastic today, maybe a little too enthusiastic. You're going to enjoy this one. Uh, First of all, I'm recording this in February 2014, so the tools and tactics I mentioned may be slightly or completely outdated if you listen to this months or years into the future. There is no way around that issue. Wish there was, but there isn't. I just wanted you to know that so I could throw it out there. And second, I do not, I repeat, I do not know the right way to curate. There is no, quote, right way to curate. I just know a way that works for me and works for a number of other folks. So supplement this episode's content with prior curating-related Smart and Simple Matters episodes, which will be linked in the show notes, and the oodles of awesome curating stuff on the interwebs. Some of that awesome stuff is going to be at valueofsimple.com slash SASM042, the show notes for this episode. So what am I going to cover this time around? 
Well, this episode is going to focus on Experience Curating's FOCUS framework. That is an acronym for the Experience Curating How-To Process and FOCUS, F-A-O-C-A-S, which I pronounce FOCUS, stands for Filter, Archive, Organize, Contextualize, Access, and Share. I am also going to explore the tools of the trade. We'll get into some talk about Excel, exciting Evernote, library thing, commonplace books, and uh, maybe a few other items, depending on how much I think I can cram into this episode. It's going to be worth it, so please stick around until the very end. If you want a brief refresher on what experience curating actually is, here's how I explain it. Experience curating is a three-part blueprint that empowers you to see, capture, and share your most valuable moments. Part one develops the mindset that everything can be curated, and it illustrates the benefits of all that. Part two contains the six-step focus framework, which I'm going to cover today to make any experience meaningful. And part three teaches how to use various tools and best practices to create actual curating currency. That's really what it's all about, creating that new form of currency for you and for others that can be converted to social, intellectual, financial currency, and other types of things that are pretty darn groovy. So yes, I know it's a bit vague, but mostly because I wanted to create a concept, a book, a process that allowed you to personalize it. I've said this before, I'll probably just hammer it home again and again, but experience curating is intentionally descriptive and not prescriptive, with a few exceptions where I have awfully strong opinions. Um, For the most part, you don't get any do as I say or else from me, and that's just not generally the way that I roll. Okay, are you ready to get into the how-to of experience curating? Oh yeah, yeah you are. Word up! To make this whole curating thing real, you're going to need to know how to use the six-step process that makes it all possible. Now, I've found that FOCUS, F-A-O-C-A-S, makes more sense if you think of it kind of like filling a box. So you have to first filter, decide the box's purpose in advance, and only put the items in it that fit that purpose. Second, archive you need to determine how many boxes you need. And each of those boxes, location, shape, size, padding, and the other attributes. Third, organize. Categories, labels, how things logically relate to each other so that you can easily find one or many of them in the future. Fourth, contextualize. Make sure an item's pieces all get into the box so that you can reconstruct it later because it's all relative, folks. Fifth, access. Figure out how to transport and open that box whenever you need its contents. And then sixth is share. Understand when, where, why, and how to best showcase the box's items with others or for your personal benefits. And just boxes are one example. You can have filing cabinets or dresser drawers. There's a whole bunch of stuff that follows the focus framework in a very physical way, even if you've never thought about it before. But from an experience curating perspective, focus is a little bit different. You're about to get a descriptive breakdown that won't limit your unique personality or needs and goals. So 
how about it? Let's roll up our intellectual sleeves and see what we got going on here. First up, filter. It all starts with filtering. There's a quote that I particularly like by a guy named Patrick Ness. He says, without a filter, a man is just chaos walking. And that's what it really sounds like. Whether it's filtering your schedule or your environment or the food that you eat or whatever it is, without filters, ugh, life is no fun at all, especially when it comes to the fire hose of the internet blasting you. What do you do with all that stuff? Well, you'll see with a little experience curating. So when I'm talking about filtering, I'm talking about being intentional if you want experience curating to be valuable to you and to be meaningful to others. And that means that you will have to make judgments. You will learn the tools to see trends and find buried meaning and decide relevance in the experiences that are worth capturing and archiving. Um, I tell people filtering is just as much art as it is science. And the balance totally and completely up to you. But again, filtering can't be entirely objective. You have to use your human judgment. Otherwise, if you just use artificial intelligence and algorithms, which do a great job of aggregating, but do a terrible job of judging what data or information, also known as experiences, have meaning to who, to why, and and how, you need to use your human subjectivity. It's important. It's an asset for you here. For me, I really have very subjective filters, and I feel like I need to. Um, It's just a gut feeling for me to know when an experience I had, whether being at the World Domination Summit in 2013 and a specific conversation I had in a certain context with somebody is worth curating, or a blog post, um, a story I heard over dinner with friends. There's no formula. There's no checklist. There's no scientific method to decide what to curate. If you come up with one, that's great. Please share it with me. I'd love to see it. Uh, But from my perspective, there is no ironclad rule about when an experience could be curated. Now, to help out in the filtering process, I like to think about my primary filter as my, quote, why filter, the one that explores the motivation behind the specific experiences that I intentionally encounter and those that I just stumble upon, whether it's online or elsewhere. Um, So for example, uh, the motive for curating a home full of Samoyed stuff, like my in-laws do. Samoyeds are a type of of dog breed, and it's their favorite dog breed. It's totally different from curating a personal library. Uh, For them, the Samoyed-filled house gives them the opportunity to show off a little bit of their personality, their aesthetics, uh, and to help prove that Samoids do rock, although golden retrievers are pretty groovy too, and lots of other breeds. The personal library, on the other hand, is going to fulfill a need for continuous learning and inspiration. And there's all this diversity in curating motives. So again, you're constantly switching the filtering lens based on the experience, the topic, the medium, and the context of it all. Okay, so what about our what and who filters? Those are pretty dang important too, uh, because what you curate and who you curate for is going to radically change the perspective that you bring to everything. Uh, I use this example in the book. If you were snapping digital pictures of your environment, family, flowers, whatever, the neighbor's cool puppy, um, each picture costs you nothing. And that cute puppy is super, super cute, and you want to take a whole bunch of pictures of it. Now, your goal is to share a big Facebook album so that all your friends can flip through it to understand the date in the life of you. Um, The alternative is, let's say you are at the Great Barrier Reef, 
and you have this antique analog camera that's been handed down from generation to generation, and it takes pictures as slow as molasses. So you're only going to snap 10 pictures because each one costs a small fortune to develop, not to mention the inordinate amount of time that it takes to actually snap those pictures. But the goal here is to get a single picture into National Geographic, something that you've always wanted to do. So we've got 500 pictures for a Facebook album, 10 pictures having to narrow down to one for National Geographic. The what is the same, pictures, but the who is very different. Uh, Facebook friends versus National Geographic. Again, how do you do this? Well, I can only describe it. Only you know the intricacies of what you're curating and who you're curating for, whether that's yourself, maybe you're curating on behalf of somebody else, an institution, a charity, a spiritual organization, whatever it is, so only you can determine the appropriate filters. What I can tell you, though, is when all else fails and you're struggling to determine the potential value of an experience, fall back on a couple questions like, did something about that experience resonate with me? If so, why? And then another question is, can I or someone else benefit from a moment in that experience that I just had? If so, how and in what context? Anything might be worth curating, but most of your experiences can just safely go poof into the annals of history. You don't need to capture a ton. You just need to capture the most meaningful ones, and that could be good or bad, and your filters are what is going to allow you to do it. Now, from filters to the second step in the focus process, archive. That is the first A of focus. Uh, I don't know what you think about when you think of archives, but I used to think about these dimly lit rooms in a library back area or a historical society, something that is a place where you stash a whole bunch of information or documents. But my mindset changed when I started experience curating. I think about archives today like Evernote or spreadsheets, uh, a vibrant, aesthetically pleasing place like Pinterest, or maybe even a commonplace book. Whatever it is, you need to have one or many seriously rocking archives for your experience curating. Now, no secret about it, I strongly recommend digital archives. I'm going to go through some of the things that apply to any archive, but specifically to digital archives and why I recommend them so highly. The first part is safety. Um, When I have things digitally I know that they can exist on a server somewhere in a place that is safe, that I don't have to worry about natural disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes or volcanoes. Uh, They're safe from my son, my three-year-old son with the scissors, who's also looking to spill his milk on my stuff. Safety is a huge part of the archive. And in terms of who can access it, I also want to make sure that, at least from my most important, sometimes most sensitive experiences that I'm the only one who controls the experience. For example, I see people using Facebook almost like a curating platform. And Facebook is really, really good for a lot of things, but it's not for curating. Because once your experience is in Facebook, you control it, but Facebook does too. Now they've got a data policy that allows them to make your experiences anonymous, like the picture of your kid, who just had their fifth birthday party, they can provide them to customers and used for advertising. Google+, LinkedIn, and other social media sites are a similar way, just so nobody thinks that I'm picking on Facebook. I really like social media, 
but I'm not going to outsource either partially or completely the ownership of my most important experiences to a system that someone else owns. That's not safe. I don't want someone else to have permission to delete, modify, or add to my experiences without my knowledge and consent. So what I really tell people is treat your archive like a business sole proprietorship, you know, something that is owned and run only by you. You are the one who profits from it and determines when and what that looks like. It's your responsibility for what happens to those experiences that you capture. And I've just seen too many bad things happen to really good people when they give up control or responsibility for their experiences or they outsource safety to somebody else for them. Next up, from an archive perspective, we've got what I call convert and transform. So conversion is the ability to change your archive or a subset of the experiences in them from one format to another. Maybe that's from an Excel format into a website-friendly format, .html. Um, Sometimes it's optional, like if you want to turn text into an audio file or vice versa. Other times you want to convert your experiences from one format to another because you're forced to. Maybe the archive tool that you relied upon for years is no longer free and you don't want to pay for the premium version. Uh, Maybe there's a format that's no longer supported or your tool of choice just simply ceases to exist. I've seen all these different situations and they're really messy. One of the reasons why I like Excel so much is it allows me to convert and transform my experiences between various formats so that I can export and import relatively seamlessly like a website-friendly HTML file or a comma-separated valuable file, text, PDF. Excel allows me to export to all of those different formats. And then I don't have to spend any money or I don't have to rely on anyone else's time to convert my experiences into another archive if I want to. The question that I ask people is, how much stress would it cause you if years worth of your curated experiences were trapped in some kind of archive without the ability to convert them or to export them into another format? Is it going to take you 100 hours? Is it going to take you 1,000 hours and tens of thousands of dollars to move your meaningful experiences from one platform to another? I don't want to ever have to deal with that. And so I always think about conversion and what I can transform my experiences to and from whenever I'm experienced curating in my archive. Another really important thing to consider when you're picking your archive or choosing which of your archives to use for a certain type of experience is the maintenance. Because I don't like maintenance. I got to do it for my house. I got to do it for my car, for my kids. But when it comes to my curated experiences, I want to do as little as I need to. So that means I can easily add, uh, modify, or remove experiences with just a little bit of help. That's really important. I want to be able to quickly find and cut out experiences with hopefully built-in searching and pruning tools in my archive. I want to be able to use keyword which tags uh, or other meaningful metadata, which is also known as data about data, to search and find things. And those are all very subjective, easily, quickly, flexibly. So you're going to need to determine when you have those things. My point in all this is that we only use tools and we only properly maintain systems that are not a royal pain in the booty. Last up from an archive perspective is what I call know your limits. So your archive needs room to expand, uh, but it also needs some kind of physical or digital limits. If it's small, 
you're going to be forced into a different one, or you're going to have to buy another one of those, and another, and another, or create some kind of Frankenstein design that's just going to get convoluted and overly complicate things. But if you have something that's too big, you're going to be frustrated with its bulk and how slowly it moves, and it's going to make a maintenance nightmare for you. So there's a sweet spot out there for all of us, whether it's the difference between uh, Excel 2003, which has a strict limit of 256 columns and 65,000 plus rows. Contrast that to Excel 2010, which is basically the same program, only Excel 2010 allows for many, many times more columns and rows so that I don't feel constrained. Evernote's a similar way. You know, Evernote, the free version, has pretty small limits, like uh, the number of notebooks, 250, at least as of February 2014. You can only upload 60 megabytes a month. That's not a lot, especially if you're using audio and video files. Um, individual note size is limited. So you really have to think about how much in terms of constraints you're willing to use uh, and make sure that your archive is expansive, but not too expansive. What I will say is this, though, I, I strongly encourage people to upgrade to a newer or better version of whatever it is that they're using. If it's faster or more flexible, uh, it's worth paying an extra $5 a month or an extra $20 up front uh, if you have a painless archiving solution. Your experiences are too important to try to take the extremely frugal route with them and then pay down the road in frustration and additional time and money. To recap... Your ideal curating archive is the one that you really dig, that you enjoy using every single day because you may be using it every single day. Uh, whether it's audio, video, or other kinds of mediums, uh, our archives generally need to handle a lot more than just text, which is what most archives handled as recently as a couple of decades ago. Um, so that's why I love the premium on uh, one tool to rule them all, if you will, something like Excel or Evernote that can handle countless combinations of experience types and mediums. Do what works for you, though. Seriously. Alrighty. We are through two of the six focus steps, and next up is the O for organize. So when I'm talking about organizing, I'm talking about a specific brand of organizing where categories are the building blocks, Labels are the road signs, logic is your glue, and the relationships between what I call experience elements, those are the who, what, when, where, why, and how of an experience, all of those things form a compelling narrative. Um, this is a big concept, organizing. And I love telling the quote, Francis of Assisi once said, start by doing what's necessary then do what's possible. That's totally what organization is about for me, whether it's curating or otherwise. So because it's so huge and there's so much you could do, let's focus on what's necessary, and then we'll have fun with what's possible. So the foundation for organizing is categories. They help make sense of everything. That's why I call them building blocks. Is it this or is it that? You know, is this one thing like that or is it more like these other sets of things? That's how we classify things. That's how the human brain works. We inherently categorize even when we're not realizing it. And then, of course, that leads to subcategories and mini categories and increasingly granular categories. And people ask me, so how deep should I go? Should I have five levels of categories in my hierarchy? Should I just have one, a master level, and then try to squeeze everything into that? It really depends on your style and what works for you. Because what's necessary to me, 
I like having subcategories. Sometimes I like having that third level of mini categories so that I can further sort and filter and slice and dice in my spreadsheets. That might be totally useless to you, or you might want to go even deeper. But what I have to say is that forget what other people tell you you should do. Don't worry about what other people might say or think about your system. Just make sure that you're testing your assumptions on a periodic basis to make sure that whatever level of category hierarchy that you determine is necessary is. Um, You might want to expand it. Like if a category label is so broad that it feels like it needs its own set of labels, therefore you need another category level, do it. Um, If you have so many master categories, your main highest category level, and they're just saying, dude, please, please consolidate me, please do it. So you'll have to figure out how to refine those levels as you go through and you get more experience. And maybe as you add more topics or more mediums to your curating, you'll have to change your categories in terms of how you label them, which is coming up in a second, or what you do with them. The thing is, one of organizing's few constants is that it's ever evolving and it's never perfect. So keep testing yourself and keep tweaking as you need to. Now, the second part of organizing is labels. And in experience curating, labels are the words or phrases associated with certain experience elements, like categories or tags. And you use your labels to make sure that your organizing is as granular as necessary and no more. Now, this is super nerdy, and you probably can't do this outside of spreadsheets, although clever people will be able to figure it out. I manage my list of labels in a couple of ways. Uh, The first one is I use the filter functionality in Excel where I can click a little drop-down icon, and then it shows me a list of check marks. And I can select, yes, I want these two out of 25 different labels, and then I can click OK, and now I only have a subset of them. Um, That helps me keep track whether a master category is food and nutrition, nutrition and food, food slash nutrition. I want to stay consistent and I don't want to have the same label and 10 different variations. Filters help me do that from a visual perspective. And then the second thing that I use is what's called data validation. And I only use these for the really important experience elements, the ones that are required, meaning every time that I add an experience to my archive, I want to make sure that I'm capturing specific elements every single time. So that validation it lets me turn off my brain. And then there's a pre-populated list of labels that I have in the spreadsheet that I've previously determined, very intentionally of course, these are the ones that I want to fit all of my labels into. So if I try to enter a label that's not part of that pre-populated list, I get an error message, uh, a hard edit that prevents me from putting in something into that cell that says, hey, that's not part of your pre-populated list. Either go add something to your list or use one that already exists. So depending on what system you have or what tools you use, your labeling is going to look different, but it's very important that you do it and that you only use as many as you have to. Okay, next, logic. So if categories are organizing's building blocks and labels are the road signs, then logic is the glue that holds it all together. You might be thinking, Okay, so how do I validate that my system is logical? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, There's what I call the 10-year-old principle, which is find a 10-year-old, you're on your own in terms of doing that, uh, and ask them. Basically, explain your system without pictures or visual aids, and if they get it, 
then your system is logical. I know it sounds crude, but seriously, it works. Um, the other one, and this is a little more formal and a little more work, but I feel is a lot better, create an instruction manual for your curating system to validate the logic. It's pretty simple. It doesn't matter whether it's in a spreadsheet format or in your journal or a Word document or an Evernote note, whatever it looks like, it doesn't matter. But all your manual needs are the name of each experience element, the purpose of it, whether it's required or optional, the acceptable format or values, like for example, maybe it's a predefined list, uh, yes or no, one or the other binary type of thing, or maybe it's an alphanumeric type of deal. Uh, the next one is an example of appropriate information, both for your uh, benefit and if you share your archive with somebody else, they understand what's supposed to go in there. And then a place to record general notes about the element, a free-for-all for whatever you want. Instruction manuals are not just for folks like me with leaky brains. Um, even those people with really good memories, they're going to forget why they created a specific experiments element or how they intended to use it. So if you have your manual, then you basically have a map. You have the legend that you need now and in the future to make sure that your archive is logical. And you're gonna save yourself and others a lot of headaches if you do just a little bit of documentation. If you wanna see what that actually looks like, an instruction manual, I have a complete example of one of mine in the supplemental resources that go along with uh, the book, Experience Curating. So just an FYI for you. Last up, from an organizing perspective, we have relationships. So those experience elements that I talked about, which are kind of similar if you're familiar with the concept of data elements, uh, it's the same kind of thing, like your personal relationship components, who, what, when, where, high, and why and how, um, they all need to work together. And each of those experience elements falls into one of those categories so that you have a complete version of whatever experience it is. So I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a quote spreadsheet, but I don't just have the quote of the person and what they said. To me, that's not enough. Uh, I will say, or I will add to the spreadsheet a column or experience element. Where did it come from? Was it a speech? Was it a book? Was it a video? Uh, what date did the person who said the quote, did they say it? That adds additional context. If they said it in the 1800s versus if they said it yesterday, very different world, 200 years apart. So that's important. Who was their target audience when they said it? Sometimes that's important in order for you to know um, who you might make the quote relevant to. Uh, what was a single word in your mind or a short phrase that you would use to describe the quote? These are what I call keyword-rich tags, and I have a column or an experience element for those things. And you can continue to go on, but quotes are a perfect example of, it's not just about who said it and what they said. There's so much more to a quote, and if you capture all that information up front, you're going to have a curated archive of quotes that's much better and more relevant and valuable than just about anyone else's. Now, to recap the O section of focus, all you need to remember is categories, labels, logic, and relationships. It's kind of rough sometimes. I get it. I'm also aware that it takes a little bit of time in order to get your organizing systems in order, but the experience curating rewards of a well-organized archive are so, so worth it. Next on the focus scene is the C for contextualize, because if organizing gives you the building blocks and the road signs and the glue, 
then context is the sustaining river that gives each moment that you archive and organize life because it's all relative. And when I say it's, I mean everything. Any experience that you have is relative. Even if you have it at the same time in the same place as your friend, you're going to experience that very differently. So preserving the context from your perspective is incredibly important. It doesn't really matter what format it takes. You can copy and paste an online article. You can jot down thoughts in the margins of a piece of paper. Um, You can record a recap in your smartphone on Evernote or some other dictation device. It doesn't matter as long as you capture the original context right away before your memory starts mutating it. There's a couple of things that I'll link to in the show notes that I won't elaborate on here, but there's research from Northwestern University. There's also uh, Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel laureate and the father of behavioral economics. He has this awesome TED Talk called The Riddle of Experience Versus Memory, where he talks about the experience self and the memory self. Uh, There's all these reputable sources that make these powerful arguments that our memories are not all that great when it comes to preserving the original experience the way it was experienced. That's why you need to do it outside of your brain. And that's why you also need to look beyond the surface. Meaning, if you're looking at your context river and all you're looking at is the surface level stuff, then you're going to ignore everything above and below that, which is kind of a lot, pretty much everything. Uh, So for example, if you just watched your favorite TED Talk for the third time in the past month, get inside the head of the speaker. Why did they select the examples that they did? What kind of experience do they have with the topic that the average person doesn't? What informs their recommended solution uh, and who has influenced them? Those are the kinds of things that you could find out that will help you better apply context to what you love so much about their TED Talk. And then it will allow you to add valuable layers on top of the original context, that's where your value as a curator comes in. Not just passing along the original context, but putting your personal spin on it, your added experience and skills, passions, influence, and interest, that makes something more meaningful than the original experience. So if you only remember one thing when it comes to contextualize, make it this. Do not rely on your memory for context. Your brain is not going to interpret an experience the same way even moments after you first have it. Now for the second A in focus, which stands for access. And you're probably going to ask me when I'm done with access. Seriously, that that's it, dude? And the answer is yes, that's it. Um, but every previous step in the focus process is going to be worthless if you can't access your experiences when, where, and how you want them. In other words, as I say, a tool is only as good as your ability to use it. So I'm going to explain real quick. There's something I call the everywhere doctrine, and it's really easy. There's only two principles to it. The first one is be able to take your experiences anywhere there's electricity. The second part is let your experiences exist in multiple places at the same time. Now, the reference to electricity means they're digital, and the reference to multiple places at the same time means you have them synced across the cloud, for example, whether that's with Dropbox or Google Drive or some ability to have the same experience and access it, whether you're on your laptop, your smartphone, someone else's computer, that's incredibly important. And the magic of the Everywhere Doctrine is that you get to control your curating system and it only requires traveling with some kind of handy charged electronic device, which you probably already own and use. So that's it. That's the second A of focus. Access your experiences when, where, and how you want to. 
The last letter in focus, the S, is a big one. It stands for share, and it's possibly even bigger than the organized piece. So I'm not going to cover every single facet of it because it's too huge for a single podcast episode. Um, but one thing that I'll have to say is sharing isn't always caring. I don't know who came up with that phrase, but they're not curators. I know from personal experience that sharing isn't always caring because I used to be the kind of click here, I'm awesome kind of person. Hat tip to Jay Bear for that one. Um, meaning I would share experiences like so, through social media, whether it's through Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and it was all self-promotional. It was a, hey, look world what I just did. I'm awesome. Click here and you're going to see how awesome I am. That's not the way to curate. That's not the way to share. That means you're going to need just as good filters determining what comes out of your archive as you use to determine what goes into it, the F in focus. I talked about some sharing best practices in part one of this two-part experience curating podcast sequence like ethics and attribution, so I'm not going to hit them here again. But one of the main things that I believe with a passion about sharing is that we should all keep quiet unless we can improve upon the silence. I don't know about your world, but mine is so noisy, literally and figuratively, and it doesn't need me or other people adding to the numbing number of words, bits, and bytes that are just constantly fired at me. I know that your voice and your contributions, they're valuable, but the power of them dissipates or worse, evaporates when they're used improperly. So before your next chat, before you share something on social media or you send an email, ask yourself, Will the experience I'm about to share be more valuable than silence? That's the key question when it comes to sharing. And I'm going to let you answer that one each time because nobody can answer it for you. But if you do decide to share an experience, there are a number of things that you need to keep in mind. One of those things is an attribution resolution, basically uh, attribution to consistently give credit where credit is due. It's ethical. It preserves the internet's value, which relies a ton on solid attribution. Um, and one way to honor that attribution resolution is with the curator's code. Some of you may have heard it before. It's from uh, Experience Curating Hall of Fame member Maria Popova and her partner Tina Roth. They came up with these two Unicode characters. There's a, a looping right arrow kind of dealio that stands for hat tip or HT, and then there's a sideways-looking S that stands for VIA. They form the basis of the curator's code, and they allow people to attribute someone else's work in any medium. There's other ways to keep an attribution resolution. I'm not going to go into them right now because I don't want to go overboard. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be complex, but it does have to be ethical and practical. If you want to come up with something on your own, groovy, do it, and share it with the rest of us but make sure that you have an attribution resolution whenever you're sharing something that you didn't originate. Another thing I want to note is what I call anticipate before you participate. Now, I wear a lot of different hats. One of them is Curator Joel, and he's the kind of guy that compares his goals with the receiver's benefit when I share something because my inner curator has a compass that is a lot stronger and pointed in the right direction than look how clever I can be, Joel, as I used to be and I still occasionally am. So basically, curator Joel knows how to anticipate the value to other people before he participates in the conversation. But the main thing is, anticipate before you participate. And if you can't anticipate a specific response to what you're sharing, you maybe want to question whether you should do it or not. Another biggie is 
don't get sucked into the Twitterverse. Now, when I say the Twitterverse, I'm talking about any fast-paced medium, Twitter of which is one of them, where the half-life of a tweet is, I don't know, somewhere, something ridiculous like three seconds or, or less. But all those folks who just rapid-fire share random experiences in a place like Twitter, they're getting sucked into the Twitterverse. Because even the lightning-paced mediums like Twitter, they still deserve your intentional sharing, both for your benefit and for the attention of everyone else. So with that in mind, I'd like you to keep a few things in mind. The first one is adjust your frequency and the type of sharing to the medium and people receiving it. What you share via email or Twitter or a handwritten note is going to look very differently, and your frequency should reflect that. The second thing is ignore peer pressure. Everybody is under this constant pressure to share their existence or certain parts of it or a topic that they love with everyone else. Some of those things don't need to be shared. And so push back against the peer pressure to share them. Next, uh, think hard before pressing that share or send button. I'm talking about like wait three to five seconds before you click that button and do an internal calculation. Is this worth sharing? And then next, remember that people, a lot of them, They don't have a choice. When you share something, they see it, and they don't know how to filter out the good stuff from the bad stuff. Now, how can people share your stuff? You're sharing a lot of other people's stuff, but it's also important if you're a creator, you're an artist, you're a dancer, and you're filming something, you are a blogger, a podcaster, whatever you are, if you create things, think for a moment about how you're going to allow others to share your experiences. That's part of curation, is creating and curating. They're not just two sides of the coin. They really have a great synergy between the two of them. And I encourage everyone who curates to also create. So think about is anything that you write, record, uh, or or just mumble happenstance, is it going to be uncopyright? Like what you're listening to right now, Smart and Simple Matters is uncopyright. You can do whatever the heck you want with it. But maybe some of your stuff is going to fall into creative commons, or maybe it's going to be copyright. So whatever it is, whether you need a licensing agreement for what you create, think about and make sure you're communicating how people can share your stuff. It makes other people curating what you create much, much easier and effective. I just have a couple more comments when it comes to sharing. The next one is have a lifetime reputation in mind. What I mean by that is the curator's mindset considers the lifetime impact of sharing an experience, not just what happens two seconds from now, not just what happens today or a week from now. What you put out there into the world these days in a digital 21st century might stay out there permanently. So you need to assess the lifetime impact of what you share. Even a random tweet that might be used against you or it may be curated and valuable to someone else going down the road. What I've found is that the reality in the long run, any experience you share could just as easily have a negative reputation consequence as a positive one, not just to you, but also to the people who are downstream from what you're sharing. So it's just another reason why preserving silence and using the utmost discretion are the name of the curating sharing game. The last thing I want to mention is nailing the level of detail. So when you're sharing something, you could share a word, You could share a 10-hour video. You could share a lifetime's worth of your work in a 50-part book series. Now, I've found 
often a non-text medium is best for that. And that's not just because I love the spoken word more than I love the written word, but I, I do this all the time. I'll turn on my microphone, I'll record an MP3, and email a file of me talking, just like I would if the person who I'm sharing with were sitting right next to me, instead of typing a massive wall in text. Uh, for me, the audio format, it's a lot more expressive, it's faster, it's generally better received by the person who's getting it, and it's easier to communicate the details. So if you're a visual person, maybe you want to do a video or a quick picture with your cell phone to retain the lost nuance of body language or color palette. I'd just like you to think about nailing the level of detail and figuring out how much does somebody need and in what medium should I communicate it. Text is great, but there's lots of mediums pictures, audio, video, and others that are just as good, if not better. Now to recap the S in focus, think about what's in everybody's best interest when you are experienced curating. So you'll accomplish that by upholding an attribution resolution, anticipating before you participate, and making sure you don't get sucked into the Twitterverse. You'll have to set clear rules about how people can share your stuff, your experiences, and make sure that you keep that lifetime reputation in mind, yours and everyone else's, when you're sharing something. Once you nail the shared level of detail, you're going to do awesome. Pretty groovy, huh? That was the nutshell version of the FOCUS framework. Filter, archive, organize, contextualize, access, and share. So to give you a little bit of a recap, remember, a filter only lets in the gems. An archive, it's strong, but it's flexible. A system needs to be organized. Context needs to be preserved and added to. Experiences deserve to be accessed when, where, and how you need them. And your sharing process is meaningful and useful. Okay, now let's have a little tool talk. The tools of the trade. Tools, tools, tools. Okay, first of all, I have a bias. Well-founded and justified, I like to think at least. I enjoy all-purpose tools in general, and I especially dig digital tools for my curating. I'm not saying you need to do it, but I'm just letting you know what my preferences are up front. So for example, I find a lot more safety in keeping my most precious experiences synced, backed up, and safely distributed in multiple places. It's that whole everywhere doctrine thing I was just talking about. I don't have to worry about volcanoes. I don't have to worry about hurricanes or earthquakes in Minnesota, but I do have to worry about fires or potential property theft, clumsy little boys that I suspect are sometimes intentionally cutting up or spilling stuff on the things that are important to me. And I also find that archives with low maintenance levels actually lead to me using them instead of dreading them. That's pretty important because, as I already mentioned, we only maintain systems that aren't a pain in the keister. Now, I could elaborate on all these preferences for all-purpose digital tools, but you're going to be hearing them as I go through some of the tool talk. Now, first of all, your decision is physical or digital. That's a big one, and you can mix and match. So, for example, you can use RSS feeds to filter the good stuff and handwrite the curated gems in your journal, but shifting back and forth between the real and virtual world is really inefficient and generally unsustainable. For you folks who love the tactile feel of the pen and paper and physical objects, there are ways to experience curating with something like a commonplace book 
Ryan Holiday, he wrote this great article for a website called Thought Catalog. It's called How and Why to Keep a Commonplace Book. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It's the best argument for and how-to of physical curating that I've seen. There might be better ones, but it's phenomenal. So Ryan describes a commonplace book, and I quote, he says, it's a central resource or depository for ideas, quotes, anecdotes, observations, and information you come across. The purpose of the book is to record and organize these gems for later use in your life, in your business, in your writing, or whatever else it is that you do, end of quote. Now, Ryan and I, from a philosophical perspective, we're totally in alignment when it comes to experience curating. Uh, He believes that a commonplace book can be the thread that weaves through everything you do, which is what I believe about Excel spreadsheets. Um, He says that the commonplace book is what ties your passions, your skills, your interests together to make you better at each of them. And yep, I'm totally agreeing with him. He talks about curating wisdom, not facts, but wisdom. And he advocates the ritual of curation, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly over haphazardly processing giant stacks of curating piles. Again, I'm in total agreement with him. And he's basically saying what I've been claiming for years now, that curating is the thing that will help you with all the other things. That's been my experience. And other people are starting to realize that too. So if you don't own fancy schmancy tech gadgets, you stay close to your house a lot of the time, you have really nice handwriting, which is important when you're doing physical curating, uh, and you generally keep your experiences private, then seriously, by all means, use a commonplace book, a journal, a moleskin notebook, sticky notes, whatever it is, you can probably curate that way. Uh, Because although why you curate is more important than how you curate, Really, the how determines the value of your curating for you and for everyone else Everyone else down the line. And the how is a lot easier, it's safer, it's faster, it's more searchable, and a whole host of other good things when it's digital. That's why I'm so big into the digital curation. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on why I love digital curating tools like Excel and Evernote so much, at least not in this episode, because I'm not here to convert you to my ways. I just want you to think about the long-term difference in the utility, in the access, the function, the maintenance, and other categories that are meaningful to you when you decide between physical or digital curating tools. Your next major decision when it comes to tools of the trade is all-purpose versus specialized. Now, I curate a ton of topics in a ton of different mediums. Uh, My topics are simplicity or personal finance, organization, you know, the whole simplify, organize, and be money-wise, but there's a lot more to it. The mediums, it could be uh, picture, it could be audio, it could be video, it could be text, whether that's an email, a blog post, a book so many different types of things, and I don't want to have to have a different tool for each combination of topic and medium. So my, I found that my curating is a lot more valuable to me and to everyone else if I have everything in Excel, regardless of whether it's a YouTube video, uh, audio snippet from a podcast, pictures from all over the internet, text from books or blogs, having access to all of my important experiences in the same place Regardless of the medium, regardless of the topic, regardless of the visual format, enables me to maximize all of those experiences and slice and dice all in one place. So for instance, I can search uh, any experience by category or keyword, and I can do streamlined maintenance all in one place, all in a single spreadsheet. 
So there are supplemental tools like speech-to-text programs, for example, Dragon Naturally Speaking, that will make your process more efficient because even though I'm curating in mediums other than text, I'm converting audio or video or pictures into text in Excel or attaching the original thing if it's not too big of a file so that I have everything all in one place. But maybe you only want to curate text. I know a lot of people like the written word. I do, although I don't like writing the written word. Um, Books. Maybe you want to do something only for fantasy fiction. Well, then you can use a specialized tool like library thing. That might be ideal for you. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now, to decide between all-purpose versus specialized tools and say which one is your main one and which ones are the supplemental ones, this is the process that I recommend in the book. So first, create a grid. You can do it by hand or you can do it in a spreadsheet to help you visualize this all-purpose versus specialized tool decision. So you're going to list the topics that you'll curate in the rows in your grid, and then you're going to list the mediums, audio, text, video, that kind of stuff, for the various topics in columns. And then you're going to enter the desired or potential tools that you might use for each combination of topic and medium to see how many there could be. Maybe you're going to realize that you have 50 different tools for 100 different combinations. That is totally unsustainable. Um, Likewise, maybe you realize you want to use Evernote for everything, but you don't want to trust all of your experiences to Evernote, and you need to diversify a little bit. There's a, a great template that I have for a simple or granular set of combinations of topics and mediums in the book, but just don't go too wild here. Keep it simple. There's no right way Do what works for you, regardless of the rather strong biases that this Joel fellow seems to have. When it comes to digital tools, at least, if you want to see what's out there for your medium or for your topic, Experience Curating Hall of Fame member Mr. Robin Good has an awesome resource of digital curating tools on his Zeef page. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Um, But you can narrow down your decision based on topic and medium. I highly recommend that you check that out. Okay, we just hit the major factors in your tool decision-making process, physical versus digital, and all-purpose versus specialized. So let us get a little specific now. I'm only going to cover some tools that I am personally familiar with and that are widely available. Guess where we're going to start? Guess. Yeah, you know it. Spreadsheets specifically the Excel kind. Now, I don't want to discourage people from using Spreadsheet, but I got to say alternatives like LibreOffice, Kingsoft Spreadsheets, Apache OpenOffice, and the Spreadsheets in Google Drive, they are subpar, often substantially compared to Excel. So if you're thinking about curating in Spreadsheets, highly, highly, cannot highly recommend Excel enough. And Even Excel for Apple products is better than any other alternative. But I have to mention that um, Excel for Apple, like Mac, it doesn't have some of the Windows-based functions that I like and use, although none of them are so core to curating that you aren't going to be able to do it if you use Excel for Mac. Here's the process, which I cover in the Value Simple article, Spreadsheets and You, How and Why to Put Your Life in Them. First, define why you're creating a spreadsheet. Is it because you have a poor memory and you want an external one to offload all of that good stuff to? Or maybe you want to easily locate a set of common experiences or topics. Maybe you don't want to pay for some kind of resource that a spreadsheet could outmaneuver and you already have access to them. So why pay? Knowing why a spreadsheet is the best option is key. 
The second part is determining how many worksheets, those are commonly referred to as tabs, you need. The little things in the bottom left-hand corner that separate uh, one tab from another tab. Uh, My default is to just have one so that everything is all in one worksheet. I can quickly see, sort, and filter, search everything in one place. There is a time, there is a place for multiple tabs. And I have one of my curated spreadsheets. I call it my reviews spreadsheet, where I review certain experiences um, that has more than one. But some spreadsheet programs or formulas, they get harder, they get slower. Sometimes they're impossible. They just simply don't work across multiple tabs. (coughs) A Google Drive. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Uh, So that's the second piece. Determine how many tabs you need. Third, think about the visual formatting. Now, I don't really think about it too much because I'm a minimalist in nature and the spreadsheets that I use, there may be some shades of gray, but basically it's black and white with just a little bit of gray. Uh, But I do think hard about, from a visual formatting perspective, not the color, but the functionality. What is a cell's format best use? Text, number, date, Uh, what should the font be? The text alignment, should it be wrapped, should it be indented, left aligned, center aligned? These are all things that I think about when it comes to the visual formatting of my spreadsheet. Fourth, this is a biggie folks, identify your sort and filter needs. Sorting and filtering is the killer app within spreadsheets. Knowing how you wanna sort and filter a spreadsheet helps you decide what type and how many of those experience elements, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of an experience would be useful. So maybe you wanna sort by a keyword rich tag or who created the experience, if it's an author or a set of authors, for example. Uh, Is filtering within your category hierarchy important? Whatever experience elements that you need to slice and dice and drill down on and cross-reference should be required columns and everything else can be optional. Fifth and last, Think about future modifications. Easier said than done, I know, but making a structural or visual change to a digital spreadsheet is normally pretty easily. But if you create some kind of Frankenstein and then you realize, oh, that's not the intended use for it. I intended to use it like this. I didn't consider the future changes of the modifications that I might need, why I would want to add or delete columns, why I would need to do heavy maintenance in a specific type of way, like replacing 300 of the 500 rows with something else why I would need to add a tab or consolidate multiple tabs in one. Uh, That spreadsheet purpose might change, and with it, the spreadsheet itself is going to change. So when you prepare up front for those potential changes and spend a few minutes thinking about how your spreadsheet may evolve, you're really going to save yourself a lot of headaches and ensure you don't have to blow everything up and then start again from scratch. I could go on and on about Excel and how I use it for curating. And I'll actually probably create some additional videos and a PDF guide that shows you how I do it if people are interested in that kind of thing. But I want to also hit on another awesome curating platform. That's Evernote. Now, like Excel, Evernote has moved way beyond its original intended purpose and scope. So they've got these seriously groovy screen capture add-ons like Skitch. Uh, to-do lists, third-party services that have integrated with them. It's just awesome. It's Evernote, it's its own digital ecosystem, and it's a really passionate one. People love Evernote, like I love spreadsheets, Excel specifically. But I just have to say, 
Evernote's, at least from my perspective, from a curating perspective, it's not gonna get bonus points for its non-curating use, meaning all my comments here are within a curating context. What I like about Evernote, from a curating perspective, are things like, for example, they have one-click sharing of notes or a whole notebook to various social media channels, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or you can do it through email. That's pretty groovy. Uh, also, the automated note creation process through services like If This Then That is pretty awesome too. Although you gotta be really careful because if you're pushing a whole bunch of experiences to an Evernote notebook in an automated fashion, whether it's from Craigslist or your Gmail account or YouTube, it's bypassing your human filter and you might be creating this giant garbage heap. So be careful and make sure that you are constantly analyzing what automatically gets into your archive. But for me, Evernote's strongest benefit is just how pervasive it has become. I can load Evernote in seconds on my Windows-based laptop, on my Android-based smartphone, and my wife's iPad. Everything is all synced and pretty, although one knock on them, the experience from device to device and operating system to operating system is a bit different. A little bit of a learning curve there. But overall, there's a ton to like, and it can be a true Swiss Army knife for curating any topic and medium. However, there are a number of things that I really don't dig about Evernote. Uh, For instance, they're constantly making updates, which a lot of times that's great, but sometimes they're major, they change the look, the feel, the functionality, which again, is often different depending on what device or operating system you're using when you open up Evernote. Um, It's just really hard to keep pace with the changes themselves, let alone what the changes mean to me and how I use Evernote and how I can maximize my experience with Evernote. Another thing I don't care for Evernote doesn't support subcategories. You know, at the notebook level, that's basically a category. And each of your notes, you can think of them like a subcategory within the notebook, but it doesn't really work that way. Uh, They have stacks, which are purely visual in nature that don't really help. I need my subcategories. Sometimes I even need mini categories beyond that. And Evernote is not set up to accommodate that. But really, my biggest beefs with Evernote are twofold. So first of all, it's really lacking good export options. You only get three formats, at least as of recording this, February 2014, one of which is proprietary, and it severely limits your ability to import your experiences into another tool should you want or need to, because maybe you don't want to use Evernote for the rest of your life. Well, what about the experiences that you have in there? To me, it almost feels like they're kind of trapped. And for comparison purposes, Excel has about 30 different export formats, common ones and obscure ones like HTML, which is common, DIF, which is a little bit on the obscure side. And I know maybe Evernote does it intentionally to keep a stranglehold on our experiences, or maybe they just don't see the importance or the need for more export options. But either way, it still feels to me like they are limiting my ability to take my stuff off of their platform, and that doesn't feel good. My last beef is about experience ownership. Now I'm gonna paraphrase the uh, experience curating book here, but according to the Evernote privacy policy, they don't use the contents of your account except to make them available to you. Well, what does that mean? I mean, it sounds great until you read the information access and disclosure section with some pretty big caveats. For example, Evernote might access or share your data, 
often without your awareness, to pass along information to, quote, affiliated and unaffiliated service providers, end of quote, to comply with warrants or court orders. And if Evernote sells or reorganizes itself, that's a lot of different circumstances where they might access or share my data. And they have this three laws of data protection, which are your data is yours, your data is protected, and your data is portable. But that rings hollow to me because they conflict with their own internal policies like storing your deleted data for up to one year. I'm not trying to pick on Evernote. They're actually a lot better at protecting your experiences than other third-party platforms. Facebook, for example. But there are inherent risks with any tool that you store your curated experiences in and you should be aware of them. But if you can get past the utility and privacy trade-offs, then Evernote is an amazing curating platform. It definitely gets a gold star from me, and I encourage people to use it. There's nothing like Excel when it comes to use and access, but very few tools allow you to curate so many types of experiences with the power and the pizzazz and the appeal that Evernote does. Okay, digital Swiss Army knives like Excel and Evernote are great and all, but sometimes you just gotta get specialized. So if you're like me and the rest of the world, you kind of like reading books. It's a big thing, and it has been for a few centuries or so. Uh, And with all due respect to Goodreads and Shelfari and other book curating tools, Library Thing is much better specifically for experience curating. And you might be asking, why? Well, uh, Library Thing, they have a free account for up to 200 books in your catalog. The paid account for more than 200 books is as little as a dollar a year if you use their pay-what-you-can model. Uh, Their import tool, oh my gosh, I'm geeking out on this one, but their import tool is insanely awesome. It can handle any data format you throw at it. Goodreads file, Amazon.com wish list, some exotic format that you created yourself, no biggie when it comes to library thing. Uh, Other things that I like, you can add columns to your new or existing book collections from 700 plus data sources for experience elements like what language the book was written in. Uh, Social sharing features are really cool too, although personally I don't use them because I share my curated book experiences from an Excel spreadsheet instead. But most people want to share them directly through Library Thing. And Library Thing's great at that. And get this, they actually allow for sorting, which is rare in a web-based curating tool, and they even let you have a secondary experience element to sort by. And if that's not enough, their founder, a guy named Tim Spaulding, he's just a stand-up guy. I fully support his philosophy on business and the platform that he's created, and he's pretty dang funny. So I'm here to say there is absolutely a time and a place when the intersection of topics and medium benefits from a specialized tool like Library Thing. I know lots of people, they swear by Pinterest for curating recipes or various fashion elements. There's a service called Redux for curating online videos, Sway with two Ys for social media, Uh, there's Flash Issue for email newsletters. You know me, I prefer Excel, and I supplement with Evernote for the capture process, but do what you want to do. That's all I got to say for now about curating tools. To recap, decide first whether you want to use physical or digital tools. Then determine what your Swiss Army knife might be if you have one. It could be a commonplace book. It could be Excel. It could be Evernote, for example. And then supplement with specialized tools like Library Thing 
when the combination of topic and medium calls for it. Okay, holy cow, that was a lot of experience curating to pack into two episodes of Smart and Simple Matters. I hope you got a ton out of it. Um, I just got to say, the simplicity, though, of experience curating in general, and the focus framework in particular, you can apply it anywhere. I talk about using experience curating for personal finances. I use a tool for Quicken for basically curating my personal finances. Um, To-do lists are awesome from a curator perspective. You're only limited in what you can apply experience curating to based on your imagination. If you haven't already started your curating journey, how about today? Make today the day that you start benefiting because it's too important not to do. It's not hard. And it's often fun when you use 0.1% of your time to actively consolidate the gains you make in the other 99.9%. Doesn't that seem worth it? Now, if you're ready to start experience curating or continue your experience curating journey, which I hope you've already started, the resources from this podcast episode will help. You can find them at valueofsimple.com slash SASM042. But I got to tell you, the show notes don't replace reading the book on experience curating. So um, (laughs) how do I delicately say this? Can you uh, consider buying my book, please? You can do that whenever you like or never do it at all. I'm still going to love you all the same, but you can go to valueofsimple.com slash ECB, Echo Charlie Bravo, if you want to get experience curating the book. There you go. That was part two of two in the Smart and Simple Matters experience curating coverage. In this episode, I ran through the focus framework filter, archive, organize, contextualize, access, and share, and also some tools of the trade and deciding between the tools of the trade. I'm sure you have comments. Maybe you have a bone to pick with me about some of my strong curating preferences. As always, you can catch me on social media with an email to joel at valuesimple.com through a voicemail on Value of Simple. And there's a number of other places I hang out online. You can get them all on Value of Simple. Now, if you've read Experience Curating already, feel free to leave me a candid review and tell me honestly, what do you think on Amazon, on Library Thing, on Goodreads, your blog, or anywhere else for that matter? And when you do, please let me know. I want to highlight it. I want to share your added wisdom, the additional context that you provide on top of what I've created so that everyone can benefit. Thanks for listening to another episode of the show. You're awesome. Ah, you're awesome. And you probably rock more than I know. Now, go get your experience curating on. It's time for your partner in simplifying to sign off again. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Soslowski, creator of all things value of simple. Simple.